We're going to pick up in 2 Kings chapter 21. A few weeks ago, as we looked at the downfall of northern Israel, of the ten tribes, of those that were gathered around the capital of Samaria, uh, we used the metaphor of a car that had lost its brakes, hitting terminal velocity. Uh, We will see the same thing tonight, Um, but most of it comes down to the juxtaposition of two separate kings. First, Manasseh, who we'll begin with, uh, and then Josiah. Uh, And they are definitively the worst king in the line of Judah and the best king save David, the best king since David. Uh, And they are very close together. But for us tonight, we need to remember, especially since we took a week off, um, that Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was also a reforming king, a good king who restored much of Israel's worship. Um, But late in Hezekiah's life, God sends a prophet to tell Hezekiah to get his house in order because the sickness that he's experiencing will be unto death. And Hezekiah uh, prays to the Lord and asks that he would be spared, and God heeds that request and promises that he'll live for another 15 years. It's during those 15 years that he gives birth to his son Manasseh, uh, uh, and he is uh, the, uh, the man who takes the throne in chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Now, most of the time in First and Second Kings, a long-standing reign, one that's more than 40 years, usually coincides with a very good king. Okay? That is not the case here. In fact, it's amazing how much damage Manasseh does in just 50 years. It says here in verse 2, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. You'll notice as it goes on to describe Manasseh's reign here, it uses a few touch points. And the first one, it goes all the way back to Israel's predecessors. Remember that the land that God gave Israel, he gave them graciously, but it belonged to others who lost it because of their horrendous behavior and so God brought judgment on those people and here Manasseh has basically taken a page out of their book and said let's worship like they did let's live like they did Uh, and so it continues and it explains in verse 3 he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed and erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. There's the second touch point. Remember, Ahab was the worst king of, uh, of Samaria, of the northern tribes, uh, and here he learns from his reign as well and embraces the cult of Baal and the Asherah. Uh, and he worshipped, it says, all the hosts of heaven and served them. Okay, now... Uh, astral worship is something that he probably garnered from Assyria. It was very big in Assyria as well as Babylon. And so you can see here that he's uh, reaching out into every quarter for his worship except 
for the heritage of his father except for the covenant that God has given them. In fact, verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. Okay, and so Jerusalem was to be set aside for God, and even there he sets up these altars, even in the temple that Solomon had built. Verse 5, he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and he burned his son as an offering. Okay, that's the worship of Molech, which has come up a few times. And then it says, and he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved an image of an Asherah that he had made. He set it in the house of David, which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Now, the author takes the time to quote there, and I would suggest to you the reason he does so is not just for a baseline juxtaposition between God's will and Manasseh's reign, but I would, I would point to that uh, repeated phrase at the end, according to all the law, uh, according to all that I have commanded them, Manasseh basically takes that and does the opposite. He holistically and wholeheartedly goes his own way. Verse 9, but they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations, has, has done these things, more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now, there is a long-standing warning that goes all the way back to Solomon's behavior that this is where things were headed. But Manasseh is clearly seen here as a final straw, and the destruction here focuses in specifically on Judah, the only remnant left of Israel. The other ten tribes have already been taken by Assyria, and then on Jerusalem specifically. And so... Uh, notice the, um, the imagery that's used here by the prophets to make this clear. The first idea is that the destruction is going to be juicy gossip, right? When people hear it, their ears will tingle. They'll burn from, uh, from what's happened. Did you hear about Jerusalem? And then he says in verse 13, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. In other words, he says, I'm going to take the standard of the example that I set before them of where these things uh, lead. When it talks here about a measuring line or uh, a plumb line, uh, there's two different ways to think of this, okay? Usually when we use a plumb line in construction, it's to make sure that a wall is straight and not leaning. In that case here, the picture would be one of if they're living up to. In other words, he's going to measure out injustice and then bring about consequence. But the other way that measuring lines were used in the ancient world was to level ground. 
And so the idea here would be that he's going to stretch a string across all of Jerusalem and nothing above that line will survive. Okay? In fact, much later in Israel's history, uh, and I would, I would suggest to you that this is probably hyperbole, but much later, after Jesus came and lived and preached and died and rose, and after his disciples went out and declared him to be the Messiah, just as Jesus had promised, there came a day in 70 AD where Jerusalem was surrounded by Rome and sacked under the general Titus. Okay? Now, Titus's destruction of Jerusalem was so holistic that some historians tell us that he literally stretched a line across Jerusalem and there was nothing left. You may remember the language that Jesus uses, that not one stone of the temple will be left upon another. Okay? And so that's the idea here, is a leveling, uh, a complete destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, it says, uh, halfway through verse 13, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Okay? Just everything that's left dumped into the trash bin. Verse 14, and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Here it mentions specifically the remnant. Now generally, the idea of a remnant is the idea of leftovers. It's what's spared, it's what's protected. The remnant in the Old Testament begins with God's words to Elijah. After Elijah stands boldly against uh, Ahab and the prophets of Baal, and God shows up and does his work, he hears that Jezebel is seeking his life, and he runs away, and he's in hiding, and God comes to him, and he says, Elijah, what are you doing? And he says, I'm the only faithful left in Israel. Every other one has been killed. And God says, not true. I have 7,000 that have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. That's where the idea of the remnant, the leftovers, the protected, the preserved begins, but we see that idea continue uh, throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament to the degree that when we get to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul evokes this idea and says God is doing the same thing now in the midst of this long-standing judgment on Israel while the gospel of their Messiah is going to all the other nations God has also preserved for himself a remnant. But what's striking about how the word is used here? It's used here of those who are being handed over. Even the remnant are not going to be spared from what happens here. It says that he's going to forsake the remnant of his heritage and give them into the hands of their enemy and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they've done what was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Remember here, Manasseh may be the end of this long-standing trajectory, but he's not the beginning. He's not some sort of curveball out of uh, left field. I'm trying to mix as many metaphors as possible. Uh, it's not a surprise to find Manasseh. It's a final pinnacle of what we've seen, as it points out here, uh, since the fathers of Israel, before they were a nation, before King David, before all the way back to Moses, when God led them out of Egypt, they have been provoking me to anger since that day. 
As we talked about last time we gathered, God has made a covenant with Israel, and the consistent pattern is that they have not been faithful to it. And so, verse 16, we learn on top of all of these aberrant worship practices that Manasseh lays out, verse 16, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. If you go all the way back to David, one of the main themes in David's life is the avoidance of blood guilt. Remember, and so in, in his early days, as he is serving under Saul, and Saul is seeking his life, David knows that God is going to make him king. Saul knows that God is going to make him king. And therefore, Saul seeks to kill David. And over and over again, David says, I will not slay the Lord's anointed. Even when opportunities are presented to him that seems like God has presented them tied up with a bow, he refuses to do so. And then as he's on the run, there comes an occasion where he's slighted by a foolish and gluttonous man named Nabal. And David actually loses his temper and decides he's going to take Nabal's life. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, intercedes and steps in. And she speaks very boldly and she says, God has sent me to stop you from committing blood guilt, from shedding innocent blood. And the horror of David's life, of course, is that he makes it all the way to the throne without doing so. And then through his sin with Bathsheba, takes the life of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Other men die on the front line. And so he ends up committing blood guilt. But for Manasseh, that's a daily occurrence. It says that he kills so many innocent people, he uses the power of his kingship to take lives that stand in his way to the extent, it says, that Jerusalem overflows with blood. Now, most likely, this is probably referencing a couple of things. It's probably ref referencing outright injustice and oppression. In other words, like, uh, like we see with Ahab before him, these are people who have things that Manasseh wants, and so he just has them killed. They're obstacles, and he removes them. It probably also refers to the prophets. Okay. In fact, uh, uh, there is uh, some extra-biblical material that, that says that it was during the days of Manasseh that Isaiah comes to his death and that it's at Manasseh's hand and he has him sawn in two. Now, it's extra-biblical. We don't even know if that's historical, but when it talks here about innocent blood, generally that would include the prophets. And we can imagine that the same ones that had just shared with him, this is what's going to happen because of this, that their lives would be threatened. Now, verse 17, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Now most of the kings we've seen before this have all been buried in the house of David. Okay? Here it says he's buried in the garden of Uzzah. Now that could just be a historical fact, uh, but this name Uzzah is the same name going all the way back for the man who steadies the ark and reaches out and touches it so it doesn't hit the ground and is instantly struck dead. It may be that our author is trying to make a touch point here that Manasseh, in offending the God of Israel, is playing with fire. Remember, the prophets tell us that our God is a consuming fire. And so that name may be here for just that reason. 
And then we see his son Ammon takes over. Now, verse 19, Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Jothbah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now read that for what it is. We have seen consistently the rain pass from son to son in the line of David. Unlike the bloodbath that is the history of the northern tribes, where there is uh, regular conspiracy and assassination and people taking the throne, uh, sometimes only being on the throne for seven days and then being struck down and replaced. Okay? Judah's history has been pretty consistent. And here there's this wobble in the record and we go, uh-oh, What's going to happen to the line of David? And then there's uh, apparently this conspiracy is an unpopular one. And so the people put the usurper to death and take the son of Ammon and put him back on the throne. Okay? And so it's, it's the type of thing that if you, were, uh, if you were Jewish and you were reading this book for the first time, you'd hold your breath for a second and then breathe a sigh of relief. But it's a sign of what's coming. Uh, things are falling apart. Okay. Verse 25, now the rest of the acts of Ammon that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in the tomb in the garden of Uzzah, just like his father. And Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. Now consider with me Josiah's heritage. Grandpa Manasseh, father Ammon. Okay. Manasseh completely reverses everything that great-grandfather Hezekiah did. Ammon follows in those footsteps, and Josiah here takes the throne at the age of eight. Okay, very young. Now, if you've been following along in Kings with us, there's reason to find that intriguing, because when we were following the kings of Israel, we also found a young king, and he ends up becoming a game changer. Under the influence of the high priest, he brings about reform, and it's the last high mark in Samaria, the capital of Israel's history, before everything falls apart. In the same way here, we have Josiah, and Josiah ends up being, as I mentioned, whereas Manasseh is the worst king in the line of, uh, of Judah, Josiah is right behind David as being the best, okay? Despite uh, despite his lineage, despite his context, in fact, we'll find despite his ignorance here. Okay, okay. so just think back with me. Manasseh reigns for 50 years. Uh, Ammon reigns for two years. Uh, and then uh, there's that quick little blip on the radar, and then Josiah comes in as, as an eight-year-old. Okay, So half a century and more has gone by, and all that Israel was... All that it meant to worship God, all of that has disappeared. It's been lost in the dust of history. That's when Josiah takes the reign. Now, if you've been paying attention, um, you know that uh, 
First, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, as well as First, Second Chronicles, and then Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. That history is the time of the prophets. Okay, and so that uh, acts like the spine of the timeline of the Bible, and then the prophets, such as Isaiah or Zechariah or Ezekiel, they all exist somewhere in that timeline. The New Testament does the same thing with the book of Acts. Most of the New Testament epistles we have fall somewhere in that timeline that covered, is covered by the book of Acts. Okay? In fact, one last note just to help you out. We generally organize the prophets into three categories. Pre-exile, during exile, and post-exile. Okay? So we're still in the pre-exile period until the end of 2 Kings. And then during exile, that would be... Uh, the ministry of Ezekiel, that would be the book of Daniel, and then post-exile, that's a couple of the minor prophets that once Israel gets back into the land, they're supporting there. Okay, I bring that all up to say that during uh, Josiah's reign here is where we get in primarily to the book of Jeremiah, as well as the prophet Zechariah. Okay, so he's eight years old, he begins to reign in Jerusalem, and it says here he reigned 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adahiah of, of Boscath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now that last phrase is especially uh, significant because that is the literal call, the literal job description that God gives the kings, that they are to know the covenant that they are to keep the covenant and they're not to turn from it to the right or to the left, okay? So it's very summarial, it's very simple, but also very high praise. And here's how this went down, verse three. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shephan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord saying, go up to Hilkah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Now, if we go back to Hezekiah's reign, we saw that Hezekiah sets up a remodel of the temple and a new way to go about it so it actually gets done. It appears here that Josiah sets up the same thing and is going about the same way. And remember here, we've moved... Uh, we've moved again uh, just under a hundred years this time, and so it's a long time for this building to exist. It's time for another remodel, but he's doing this, as we'll see, completely in ignorance of what they should be doing. His heart is to worship God. His heart is to maintain, maintain the temple, but The God of Israel, the covenant itself, has been lost to history. And so we find him here restoring the temple. Okay. In fact, it's working the same way as it did with Hezekiah. Verse 5, let it be given to the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is the carpenters and the builders and the masons. Let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that's delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly, which is word for word what was said of the builders in Hezekiah's day. But notice what happens here, verse 8. Hilkah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now, read that for what it is. The high priest of Israel just discovered they have a covenant. 
just discovered uh, what we would call the Pentateuch, okay, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and most importantly, Deuteronomy, okay, where the entire constitution of Israel is laid out, where all of the laws that are required for Israel is laid out, the consequences of if they obey or disobey, all those things are laid out. And here, during a spring cleaning, it's discovered, completely lost and unknown, probably not even recognized until it's read, okay? And so Hilka gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it, verse 9, and Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Okay, and so Josiah has a heart to worship God, but now he encounters how far away Israel has gotten, what they have forgotten as a nation, and his first response is one of public mourning. He's overwhelmed with grief. Verse 12, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahakim the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Okay, so effectively what he recognizes here is there's a recipe book for Israel. He's just discovered it and Israel's been cooking a long time, but he needs to take the prophetic temperature. He needs to hear from someone who speaks for God where things are really at, okay? And so he sends for any prophet that can speak for God. Now, as I already mentioned, Jeremiah has been around at this point for a couple of years. Uh, Zechariah uh, prophesies during this time, uh, but instead we find another prophet, one who doesn't have a book named for them, a woman by the name of Huldah, okay? And so, verse 14, Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Okay, that would be her husband's role there. That's his job. So in other words, this is a woman who has direct relational ties to the comings and goings of the castle. Okay, she's got a royal duty, or her husband has a royal duty. Also, it mentions here, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. She's local. She's right there, okay? So I would suggest to you, probably the reason they go to this prophet in particular is because she's the closest, okay? They need a word. It's kind of high stakes, and so they go to Huldah. Now, we see a handful of prophetess, of female prophets in the Bible. So, for example, Deborah is both a judge of Israel and a prophetess. Uh, Miriam, Aaron's sister and Moses' sister, is a prophetess. Isaiah has a wife who's known as a prophetess. And that uh, continues into the New Testament. And so Stephen, who's one of the deacons in the church of Jerusalem, has four virgin daughters who are all known for prophesying. Okay? And so the gift of prophecy and even the call of the prophet is not one biblically that is gender specific, okay? In fact, uh, in the book of Joel, 
Joel looks forward to a time when God will pour out his spirit, not just on a priest over here and a king over here and a couple of prophets, but on all people. And he says, and even the maid servants and the male servants shall prophesy. Okay. And so Joel looks forward to a time where the gifts of God and the spirit of God will be poured out broadly. And that's exactly what Peter says is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Okay. And so here is Holda, this woman who is respected, who's known to be one who speaks for the Lord, who opens her mouth and says, thus says the Lord. Okay. And so she said to them, verse 15, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants and the words and all, or all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. In other words, you know what's coming, Josiah. You've read the warnings. You've read the curses in Deuteronomy 28. You know where this is headed, okay? Verse 17, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched, okay? But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord." Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring on this place. And they brought back word to the king. So yes, judgment is coming, but because of the way you responded, Josiah, it will not be during your days. Now there's a couple of different ways that we should think about that. The first thing that I want you to recognize here is the way uh, that Josiah's righteousness is described. Notice again in verse 19, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. Okay, two things here. One, notice that what uh, is held up here as being the right action is repentance is penitence, is grieving over sin. David tells us just this much in Psalm 51. He says, it's not sacrifices you've required, O Lord, or I would offer them, but instead a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But the other thing I want you to notice is that here uh, it says that he torn his clothes and wept before me. Now, that is something that coincides often in the Bible with repentance as does fasting. Take, for example, the king of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, who says, let's declare a fast. Everybody tear your clothes. Don't even let your animals eat. Perhaps God will have mercy on us. But it also shows that Josiah is grieved for the people of Israel. I would suggest to you here that Josiah has God's heart for his people. He's grieved by the sin, but he's also grieved by the judgment that is coming. And God honors that. He rewards that. He values that. 
In fact, later in the prophets, we'll encounter occasions where God is looking for those who weep for the fate of Israel. The other thing that I want you to notice in this section is that Josiah's entire generation is spared because of his response. Now, here, his response isn't enough to reverse the tide. It isn't enough to stop judgment entirely, but God does delay it for the heart of one man. Effectively, what we see break out here in Israel, in Judea, in Jerusalem, is revival. But it begins here with one heart. Now, some of the times when we use that word revival, we talk as if this is something that God does in non-Christian people. God does outside of his church or outside of Israel, okay? And so that's, uh, we think of revival as being a time when a bunch of people get saved, but that's never historically where revivals begin. Revivals begin in the church. The church has already been alive and is now revived. That's the idea, okay? Uh, And in Josiah's uh, case, we get a pretty good template for how this generally works, okay? For one, it always requires a rediscovery of the word of God. Think of Martin Luther, okay? Martin Luther grows up in a world uh, where, where everyone, just like him, is Catholic, where he's uh, familiar with, uh, with his religion uh, of Christianity through the Catholic Church, through his Latin scriptures, through Mass. He gets caught in a storm, and the storm is so bad that it scares him to death, and he makes a vow. He says, God, if you deliver me from this storm tonight, I will go into your service. I will become a monk. Now, if you read his journals, he will explain to you that during that period, he began to hate God extensively because he knew what God required of him and he could not do it. He hated his life as a monk, but by nature of being a monk, he was also suddenly exposed to routine and regular study of the scriptures. He kept reading the Bible and reading the Bible. And one night, as he was having these resentful thoughts about God, he was reading in Romans chapter 1, and he came to the verse that says, As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And something clicked. And suddenly he realized that there was a righteousness available to him that wasn't his, that was freely offered by God. And that small click that happened in a single heart is what led to the Reformation. It was a rediscovery of the word of God. Just like here, an old book, the dust is blown off of, it's opened, it's read, and it changes the heart here of a single man. But another thing that I want you to notice here uh, is the reality of Josiah's repentance is demonstrated in what happens next. Okay? Put yourself in Josiah's shoes. You go to the prophetess. You listen to the words of Huldah, and she basically says, the outcome is inevitable. The gears are already in motion. Judgment is coming, but God has seen your response, and he will spare you. Okay. I think we can at least imagine many wiping the sweat off their brow and going, okay, and that's it. But that's not what happens with Josiah. Despite the fact that on one end, God's judgment is secure, he goes about reform. And despite the fact on the other end that God has promised him peace as long as he reigns, he still goes about reform. 
both his mercy and his justice. God uh, presents both of these things, and Josiah's response is the same. These things need to change. You see, one of the things that goes on in Josiah's heart here is not merely about consequence. It's about what is right and wrong, what is life and death. Uh, He takes this reality and still moves into reform. And that's the other thing about revival. Now, God is gracious, and probably many of us have had occasions in our life where we are just personally reformed, where we have a fresh encounter with the living God, where we step out of our backsliding or out of our distraction or out of our discouragement, and everything is new again. But in these larger times of revival, what happens is that that person begins to share, to speak, to call for reform, reform, to confront the church. Okay? Here's another thing about Martin Luther. Martin Luther never desired to start a new religion. In fact, he was dedicated to seeing his Catholic church, which was the only church, reformed. That's why we call it the Reformation. Okay. Eventually, they were called Protestants, Protestants, because they were resistant to that. But until late into his age, even when he was being hunted by the Catholic Church and was in hiding uh, uh, after the Diet of Worms, his goal was still to see those things change. In fact, he was surprised when he wrote his 95 Theses that it wasn't well received. He assumed that the Pope was good and solid and th- those who represented him Uh, were misrepresenting the Pope. He didn't realize how deep things had gotten, how dark things were, but his heart was for reformation. And that's Josiah's as well. He wants to bring about a restoration of Israel. And so, chapter 23, verse 1, the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and all Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. He calls a family meeting. And notice what he does at the meeting. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Okay. He shares with them the word that he's heard. He reads it cover to cover before the people. And then verse 3, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. Okay, And so he has effectively a covenant renewal ceremony. In fact, Deuteronomy uh, contains a covenant renewal because when God starts his covenant with Israel, he does it with the generation that came out of the Exodus as adults and are standing at Mount Sinai. Okay? But 40 years after that, after that whole generation of adults has died off because of their disobedience, there's a new generation. And so Moses commits them to the Lord and they agree for themselves to the covenant. Okay? And so that's where Josiah goes here. He resets the clock of God's relationship with Israel and all of the people vow to keep the covenant that God has given. Verse 4, the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and the Asherah and all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields, the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he disposed the priest 
of whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places, at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, and those also who burned the incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and the constellations and all the host of heaven. Now, side note there, notice he starts to knock down and get rid of all the high places. Remember, that's the nevertheless that follows the kings of Judah over and over again. Nevertheless, they did not remove the high places, but Josiah uproots all of those. In verse 6, he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah and he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah that defiled the high places where the priests had made offering from Geba to Beersheba. Remember, it used to be from Dan to Beersheba, but half of Israel is gone. Okay? So it's only from Geba to Beersheba because that's, that's the territory of Judah. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which was in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Now I want you to notice here that one of the things he does is he takes these foreign places of worship and he desecrates them. He finds a way to make them so that they are no longer set apart to these foreign gods. And so in some places, that's destroying, and he takes even the ashes of that Asherah pole, right, and spreads it across a cemetery. Uh, although we think of cemeteries as holy ground, okay, because of, uh, because of the idea of a rood, of a, of a Catholic cemetery in American history, for the Jews, a cemetery is a place full of dead bodies. And what is true about dead bodies in the book of Leviticus? They make you unclean, okay? In the same way, the ancient people, that ash now is desecrated, okay? And so here he desecrates uh, the place where Molech is worshipped. Verse 11, he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chambermaid, which was in the precincts. Now, you probably noticed as we're reading this, it is detailed, like clear, in-house historical record detailed. Okay? The people who are writing down all these things, they know the locations it took place, they know the people involved. Um, but this mention here is an especially important one because it says here that there were horses and chariots dedicated to some form of sun worship. That's not referenced in the rest of First and Second Kings, but here's what's interesting. We do have, from an archaeological site uh, in Jerusalem, horse statues with sun deuses on their heads, okay? So we know that this existed. We still have remnants of this left over um, because this is a historical reformation in Israel under King Josiah, okay? Um, continuing here in verse 11, by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire, and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke into pieces and cast the dust to them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, 
which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Remember, all the way back at the beginning, in Solomon's old age, his wives turn his heart, and, it, and although Solomon was the great builder of the temple, he also built temples for these gods, and they've just sat there sometimes used, sometimes not used throughout Israel's history. And here, Josiah is the one who destroys them. Verse 14, he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. That's desecration again, okay? Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. So now he moves into the territory of the 10 northern tribes, who have already been displaced, and he desecrates those altars, the two that were set up by Jeroboam, the golden calves. He goes and he destroys those, reducing it, it says there, to dust. He also burned the Asherah, verse 16, and as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. That's reaching back all the way to when Jeroboam dedicates these golden calves in 1 Kings 13. And an unnamed prophet, just a man of God, comes and he says that this temple or this uh, altar is going to be desecrated with bones. Okay? And here it comes to pass. Okay, verse 17, then he said, what is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things as you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they left his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made. This is the northern tribes again, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he'd done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. And then he returned to Jerusalem. And so he even takes the, the priests of these other religions, just like the prophets of Baal earlier on, and he deals with them. He puts them to death as is required in Deuteronomy. Okay? And so he basically eradicates not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, but all of Israel, of every idolatrous practice and place and altar. Uh, he removes all of it, uh, but we're not done. On top of that, verse 21, the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Okay. So the first side we see of his reform is negative. He eradicates all of the false worship, but he also restores the calendar of Israel of worshiping their God, which includes Passover. Now notice verse 22, no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the king of Israel or the kings of Judah. Now, when we read that, that makes it sound like the Passover hasn't been celebrated at all, all the way back since the death of Joshua, okay? Now, we know from Chronicles that Hezekiah also celebrates the Passover. So the idea here is that nobody did it like Josiah, okay? Probably because when Hezekiah does it, the worship is still spread out and the feasting is done from house to house throughout all of Israel. But here, here it's everyone gathered in Jerusalem. You may remember that this is, uh, this is the context 
of the final weekend of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. They're celebrating the Passover, which means Jerusalem is, fulfill, is filled with all the men of Israel, age 13 and up. Every single one of them is required to be there. Okay? It's a very large crowd. That seems to be the suggestion here, is that Josiah keeps it in a way that all the adult men of Israel are gathered in Jerusalem to worship together. Verse 23, but in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. See the emphasis there, in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums, the necromancers, the household gods, the idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all that the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Which is bad news, right? Here we have this amazing highlight. It's like the e-break is thrown on the destruction of Jerusalem, and then we find out there will never be another like him. Okay. Verse 27, the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight. As I have removed Israel, I will cast off this city that I've chosen, Jerusalem, and the house which I said, my name shall be there. Now the idea here, I would suggest to you, is, is not so much one of too little, too late. But remember, we've been watching uh, as the righteousness of Israel, as the good king, bad king, has wobbled back and forth. And so it's Hezekiah, and that's really good, and there's reform. And then there's Manasseh, and he doesn't just undo what Hezekiah has done. He goes back into the deep recesses of Israel's idolatry. Uh, and restores it all. And now Josiah overturns all of that and the deep recesses, okay? But as we're told here, still things are going to move towards uh, the end of Israel. Verse 28, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. Okay, uh, just a few details here. Josiah goes to meet him in war, okay? Because this is the king of Egypt passing through Israel on the way to the Euphrates, okay? And so there's a military idea here. But when we get to Jeremiah, we'll discover that Josiah's not acting very wisely here, and he doesn't even listen to Jeremiah's counsel. And so his death is really surprising, right? Here is the greatest king since David, and he dies on the battlefield ahead of the enemies of Israel, not just the enemies, the original enemy of Israel, Egypt, right? Uh, but there's more to the story than is recorded here. Verse 30, his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb, not the one of his father and grandfather, the, the Uzzah garden, right? But apart from that, and the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Verse 31, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Again, remember that these death marks right up front tell us a good deal of what's going on, and so this is not good news. Three months is an incredibly short time. What happens? His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. 
And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Ribah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Okay, and so Josiah's son here is imprisoned by Pharaoh, uh, and they're put under tribute. Verse 34, Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in his place of Josiah's father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt, and he died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted silver and gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. In other words, uh, Jehoahaz will not support Egypt. And so he just captures him, throws him in prison, and takes his pro-Egypt brother which most brothers, I think, at that point would be pro-Egypt when the choices are prison with your family or reign on the throne. Um, and he begins to uh, pay heavy, through heavy taxes, uh, tribute to Egypt. We're told in verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Pediah of Ramah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all his fathers had done. Now, that's basically all we hear about Jehoiakim here in 2 Kings, but he's one of the kings that Jeremiah deals with the most. And so when it says here, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, we actually know what that entails, and we can take a little, um, a little time tonight to look at uh, exhibit A, B, and C of this. So first off, turn to Jeremiah 22. Here we find a prophecy that Jeremiah gives in the form of a woe uh, about Jehoiakim. So verse 13, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build for myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you were a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord, but you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And so put this in its context again. While this puppet king who reigns, uh, you know, who reigns at the behest of Pharaoh taxes his people heavily to pay Pharaoh off, he also garners and builds this beautiful palace for himself. And it pushes it further. He doesn't just do that unjustly in the sense of everyone else's circumstances, but he actually leans into the oppression and the violence to make it happen. And so Jeremiah says his funeral is going to be the equivalent of a dead donkey's funeral. Um, now, looking at another place here, 
in the book of Jeremiah. Let's turn to chapter 26. Twenty-six, one. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, don't hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do them because of their evil deeds. Again here. God's judgment isn't guaranteed because he's had enough and there's no going back. There's just no going back. Okay. Here the warnings continue through the ministry of Jeremiah. Even now, if you will turn around, Israel, uh, verse 4, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I've set before you and listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. And so Jeremiah comes, as is often the case, bringing a message of judgment. What happens here is the leaders of Israel, the elders of Judah, all the way up the rank to the king, basically threaten his life uh, for, uh, for giving this message. Okay? And so look at verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micaiah of Meshereth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and said all to the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the house a wooded height. Okay, so the officials, they bring down a death sentence on Jeremiah, and other leaders speak up and go, hey, wait a minute, this message is consistent. He says he speaks for the Lord, and these other prophets have said the same. And so they bring a few of these prophets. And what happens by the end of the chapter is Jeremiah is spared, but one of these other prophets is not. He's put to death by the king. So verse 21, when King Joachim, with all his warriors and all of the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. This is Uriah, another prophet. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid. He fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, El Nathan, the son of Akbor, and the others with him, and they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body in the burial place of the common people. Okay. And so Jeremiah is spared, but Jehoiakim puts other king or other prophets to death. Uh, the last chapter I want to look at with you is a bit later in chapter 36. What happens here is at the command of the Lord, Jeremiah has taken all of his prophecies and he's written them in a single scroll. And he brings the entire thing as a gift to the king. Here is what the Lord says to my Lord the king through Jeremiah the prophet. And so, verse 9, in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people of Jerusalem and the people who came in the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. 
and in hearing of all the people, Baruch, this is Jeremiah's uh, assistant, read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court. Okay. So they read all these words. They declare a fast. Uh, but look, verse 20. So they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and reported all the words to the king. And the king sent to Jehudai to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And Jehudai read it to the king, and all the officials who stood beside the king. Uh, verse 23, as Jehudai read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. So Josiah encounters the word of God and he tears his garments. Here, uh, uh, he's just called the king. Sorry. Uh, here, Jehoiakim hears the word of God and he tears it to shreds. Okay. So there's some of the evil acts of um, of this king. Let's move on. Chapter 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. Now, there's a whole lot of tumultuous history that happens in the last few pages we read. Basically, the simplicity of it is that Assyria loses its grip on the known world, and this uh, unknown contender, Babylon, basically through a revolt, not only throws off, the, uh, throws off the Assyrians, but actually ends up overpowering them and taking place as a powerful ruler. And so you probably recognize the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who conquers the known world uh, that we encounter in the book of, da uh, of Daniel. Uh, and so he came up to Jehoiakim and he became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. Okay. So first the king of Babylon comes and says, you have a choice here. Either you'll be my vassal or you'll be dead. And he says, vassal, please. And that works for three years, okay? And then he decides to try and fight it off. And once again, there's probably historical political reasons for this. Egypt is also fighting off. And so here Jehoiakim thinks, okay, if Egypt and I partner together, maybe. Okay, this shows how volatile politics were in those days. This is, this is Egypt who had conquered Israel at an earlier point. You know, all these things are going on. Um, uh, so he rebels, verse 2, the Lord sent against him, notice that, who? The Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophet. He thinks he's fighting Nebuchadnezzar. Side note, Nebuchadnezzar thinks the king is fighting Nebuchadnezzar, but it's actually the Lord that he is fighting against. Verse 3, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his father, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Okay. There's no help left for Israel. 
Verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and the officials of the palace officials. And the king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king house and cut into pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Okay, so a couple of things here. He comes in, Jehoiachin surrenders. Uh, all of the leaders of Israel, all of the artists and the merchants of Israel, all of the soldiers of Israel, they're all deported to Babylon. Okay? Along with that, everything that gilds the temple, gold and silver, is taken apart uh, and taken with them to Babylon. You may remember that some of these vessels become significant plot points in the book of Daniel when one of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's descendants decides to throw a party with them and use them as drinking goblets for his party, right? Okay, this is when that comes. This is also probably when Daniel gets to Babylon, okay? It's during this initial sack, and all they leave in the land are the poorest of the poor. This was a serious strategy. This will be Babylon's strategy. It's not until we get to the rule of Persia that we find a reversal in this strategy uh, of deportation, okay? Uh, So on top of that, he takes a uh, brother, more likely here an uncle, like it says in the ESV, and he appoints him as a puppet king in his place, but uh, Jehoiachin lives in Babylon. Verse 18, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to a point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, if we had read the first part of that and it said, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and then he rebelled, maybe there'd be hope. But all this is, is the death struggle of a dying kingdom apart from the God who made them. And so, 25 verse 1, in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, On the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged to the eleventh year of the king of Zedekiah. That's a two-year siege that they have the city surrounded. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all of the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. Through the Chaldean, though the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. 
okay? So now the king and all of his soldiers flee and leave whoever's left in Jerusalem there to fend for themselves. They effectively go out the back door. But as they're fleeing, verse 5, the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his armies were scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Okay, once again, very brutal but very classic ancient sentence. The last thing Zedekiah gets to see is the death of all his children. Okay, and then his eyes are put out and he heads to Babylon. Now that's also a fulfillment of the word of Ezekiel, who tells Zedekiah that he will go to Babylon, but he will not see it. Okay, cryptically. And that's how this plays out. Now, notice how high-stake things are, are here, right? Uh, so here, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, a descendant of David, and all his sons are killed. Okay. How can God fulfill his promises, the ones he gave to David, the ones where he said that one of your sons, one of your descendants, will rule on the throne continuously? Okay. Now, as we're about to see, the author knows the loophole here. And he's going to bring it out to us, but he wants us to sit with the tension of this because that's how serious things are. Verse 8, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all of the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. Okay? So we've seen this happening in stages now, but this is the final fall of Jerusalem uh, here under uh, the captain Nebuzaradan. Verse 12, but the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze that were used in the temple, of, uh, temple service, the fire pans and also the bowls. What was gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was silver is silver. As for two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. You may remember all the way back at the dedication of the temple, we talked about how we had to ask the question, is this it? Is this what God had promised Israel was going to be? Here we have God dwelling in the place on his name as he promised in the midst of his people. Here we have peace and reputation before the nations, but it's short in its duration. It doesn't last. Um, and God hadn't finished what he started. He promised that his glory would be like waters that covers the sea over the whole earth, not just in one small segment of the ancient Near East. Uh, but... Now things have spiraled down, and even that temple has been destroyed. And so, uh, verse 17, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was the capital of the bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework of pomegranates and all bronze were all around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with the latticework. Why the detail there? We've had it before, and that's why. 
okay? He's rubbing salt in the wound. He's going all the way back and quoting from what was because now it's being dismantled. Verse 18, the captain of the guard took Sariah the chief priest and Zephaniah the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war. And five men of the king's council were found in the city. The secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. Again, notice how specific the details are. This is coming from a direct report of the general that he's carrying to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 20, And Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Okay, so there, the top priest, the second and third priest, and everyone else who matters in Jerusalem is executed. Um, so it says Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gildiah, the son of Anakim, the son of Shaphan, governor. Side note, we encountered his name in Jeremiah. Um, now, when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gildiah governor, they came in with their men to Gedaliah at Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and Johan, the son of Kariah, and Sariah, the son of uh, Tanhumeth, and the Netaphetith, and Jazaniah, the son of the Machathite, and Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid, because the Chaldean officials live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. Okay? So all of these men, the last potential uprising come, and he tries to talk them out of it, and he basically says, Things will go better if you just settle down. Okay? Now, side note, this is also the counsel that Jeremiah at this point gives to all of Israel. Settle down. Marry your wives. You're going to be in Babylon's control for 70 years, okay? However, Ishmael and his friends aren't having this, but in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nathal, the son of Elishima of the royal family, aha, this is where he comes from, right? He's got, he's vying for the throne. He's got precedent, okay? Of the royal family, uh, came with 10 men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Okay? So he overthrows the final governor of Jerusalem, and then he runs away to Egypt. Okay? But, more importantly, notice verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously free Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Remember, Jehoiachin was the one who was carried away the first time, and Zedekiah was set up in his place, and Zedekiah, eyes put out because of his rebellion, all of his sons killed. Okay. Here, Ishmael, who has some route to the throne, he ends up fleeing to Egypt, and then we discover that Jehoiachin is brought back out of prison by Nebuchadnezzar's replacement, uh, evil Merodach. Okay. Uh, and notice what it says here. He freed him, and then verse 28, he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. Now, why does it end that way? Okay, first off, notice we still have a lot of Bible left right? 
So as dark and desperate as times look, as if all of the promises of God because of the unfaithfulness of Israel have fallen apart, suddenly we see one of the descendants of David who's still alive and who's being well-treated even in his captivity. Okay? It's kind of like, uh, you know how we have this way of uh, movie trilogies now where the second film and the third film is actually just one film. We just don't want to sit through the whole thing. And so at the end of the second film, everything is desperate, but there's that one little piece of hope and the victorious music right before the credits. That's what this is. It's not enough to be that yet. Remember, this book is being written during the captivity of Babylon, looking back and going, where did we go wrong? But the author, sa the author says, but not everything has been snuffed out. Not everything has been destroyed. Okay? This moment in Israel's history is the Old Testament version of the crucifixion of Jesus. The plans and the promises of God have just died and been buried. But as we'll see when we get to First and Second Chronicles, as we'll see as we look at Isaiah and he prophesies beyond Babylon, God still has a plan and he's going to bring out of this death and out of this exile life. Remember a few weeks ago when we looked at the tomb of Elisha and how that body was thrown into it and came back to life? God has similar resurrection plans for Israel. He's even now not done with them. Where sin abounded, as Paul would say, Grace will abound all the more. So, let's close there and pray. Father, the Westminster Catechism opens by saying, what is our only hope in life and in death? And as it was with Israel, it is with us, Lord, it's you. You are our only hope in life and death, not our track record, not our ingenuity, not the depth of our repentance, not our heritage or our uh, ancestral history. None of these things will stand in the light of your judgment. But nevertheless, you desire to be the God who's not only just, but the justifier of the ungodly. And you had a plan that went deeper than our rebellion could go, even to the point that you took the greatest act of human betrayal ever committed when God took on flesh and came and loved and served and showed who you were. And we put nails in his wrists and we hung him on a cross and we crucified him. Yet it was that moment, Lord, that the greatest victory was accomplished, that our hope was assured and made permanent. We thank you, Lord, for your sureness in character, for your goodness when we are not good, for your forgiveness when we sin, for the fact that uh, we can take courage because you have overcome the world, Lord. And we pray uh, that even, even in our lives, Lord, in the places where we can look and we can go, that's dead, that's over, that's just too far gone. There's no reversing the mistakes that I've made and the waywardness that I've represented. There's nothing left here but death. Lord, thank you that you are the God who, in the midst of all of that, still have a plan and can still bring life. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see it and hearts that long for it. 
and that we would be able to trust in the living God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.